Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile for Humans is brought to you by Audible.com. Get one free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, including Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland, and Crucial Conversations by Carrie Patterson. Visit www.audibletrial.com forward slash agile to enjoy your free audiobook today. Processes and tools dominate today's agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me tonight, longtime friend of the show, uh, frequent co-host, Amitai Schleier. Amitai, how are you doing tonight? I'm in week five of a six-week mini sabbatical, so I am great. Thanks for asking. That's wonderful. The sabbaticals are the best, aren't they? It's wonderful. Glad to see you again. Joining us tonight as well, a gentleman who needs no introduction in the software industry, Mr. Jerry Weinberg, how are you tonight, sir? Well, I'm doing fine. If my voice holds out, <clears throat> we'll be fine. You sound great. We appreciate you joining us. Jerry, of course, the author of over 30 books in the IT field, uh, Circuits of Consulting being one of the, I think, the more famous ones, along with the Introduction to General System Design Principles. So Jerry, clearly prolific author, huge influence in our field and just uh, very excited that you would join us and, and talk to us tonight. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you for asking me. Amitai, I, I think we've both been reading some of these books lately. I think you've been looking at the Ayers book. I was wondering if you want to start us off with a few comments and questions about that, about, I think, Jerry's latest piece of work. Yeah, so I'm about a quarter of the way through, and it's a topic near and dear to my heart because I am, and probably always will be, a recovering perfectionist. I think we've talked about this on the show a few times before. I have a blog post or two about it. And there's an Agile in Three Minutes I think we've shared here before, number five, titled Wrong, which is about the importance of 
and maybe ways to get comfortable with being wrong so you can use that information. So when I'm getting into this book, Jerry, I'm finding that it is speaking pretty loudly and clearly to me personally. And in particular, I'm looking at uh, chapter one, section six, the quest for perfection is what really caught my brain. And you're talking about survival rules, I think is called, where we learn things when we're young in particular, and we're not completely conscious of what we're learning. And we're not certainly recording the context in which we learn what winds up feeling like when we're grownups, universal rules that govern our behavior. And as long as we leave them not consciously examined, they, they can get us into trouble because there is some context where they help and we may not be in that context anymore. So what you gave as an example, uh, which seemed to me like maybe not a hypothetical example from your experience, the example you gave was uh, one survival rule someone might have is I always must be perfect. I am a recovering perfectionist. You are, too, as are an enormous number of people in the computer business. I think that uh, as a kid, I was attracted to the idea of computers. In those days, nobody had ever seen one. But I was attracted to the idea because I believed that they were perfect. And so I could work with computers. I could do some things perfectly. Uh, it didn't take me very long to become disabused of that notion. And one of the reasons I wrote the errors book was because of a strange thing. Computers don't make as many errors as we do, but percentage-wise. But they make them much faster than we do. And so they can make million, the same error millions of times in a few seconds. And uh, we're running into that all over the world now, uh, even though we've gotten very good, much of, we've gotten much better at reducing the number of errors in our software. We are using the software much more, so we're actually experiencing more failures than we experienced in the past. And uh, it's getting, it's going to limit uh, the. Uh, use of computers in the world uh, if before anything else is errors. So that's why I wrote the book, because it's kind of like uh, a, a topic that is forbidden to talk about. It, back when I wrote my first book, we had it started with talking about errors, as von Neumann did in his first writing. And uh, people criticized us for this and said, well, why are you writing about errors? We don't want to make errors. We want to be perfect, blah, blah, blah. And this has persisted for over 50 years. Uh, people keep bringing that up. Why are you talking about errors? I decided uh, I better just write a whole book on maybe that would legitimize the subject and get people talking. Well, so that's exactly where my question is, is given that so many in our field come from perfectionist tendencies like you and I, and that so many of us don't write books about errors, and so many of us don't uh, change our behavior to fit more adaptively to the context that we're in. I'm wondering, for my own benefit, but also for perfectionist listeners, how were you able to individually to use your perfectionist uh, background and tendency and, and not be governed by it, but put it to use so that you could clarify your thinking and adjust your behavior about errors? Well, I think the key thing for me, I mean, it's more than one moment, but, but certainly one moment that I remember is a certain point where I realized how ridiculous I was being. 
uh, you know, I mean that, uh, and since that time, we've helped a lot of people change their perfection rule. And as they, they can keep it, they can try to be perfect in certain circumstances, but to get more appropriate, it's choosing the context, which you mentioned. And uh, we've actually do an exercise where somebody who thinks they can be perfect will give them an assignment to sit in a chair for 10 minutes and be perfectly silent and, and not move. Right, you know, and about what happens is while we watch and we all watch, the people on the outside are watching to be perfectly, perfectly capable of seeing every mistake they make. So there's two perfections that are involved, and we put one in opposition to the other, and and one of them is going to benefit, maybe both of them. And literally, watch. I wish I had videos of this. Uh, for one woman, I remember the very first time it happened, sat there for about seven minutes, totally motionless, uh, except for the tiniest bit of breathing, which we couldn't avoid. And, uh, and, a, and we're all writing notes to catch her if she makes any mistake. And about seven minutes, she suddenly burst out laughing hysterically and couldn't stop. And it was over for her. And that's kind of what happened to me in a different situation. So that started it. And, and I'm reminded, I have a strong picture of that, of her and then of me uh, trying to be perfect and making a fool of myself. And so uh, I guess I have a stronger rule that says don't be a fool and uh, don't let people see you're being a fool. And so that sort of negates the perfection rule. It makes uh, another thing that's helped me. Uh, I learned a lot of techniques over the years to help enforce this. Um, a lot from Virginia Satir, who you probably read about in my writing. And uh, I learned from her, or we learned together, that when we do make a mistake, we get to say, we get like five seconds to say, oh, and, and that takes care of that feeling. You know, that, that, oh, I never should have made that mistake. So I get to say that, I get to have that feeling, and I get it over with. And, uh, and then I say, okay, now what can I do so I don't keep doing that, and, and so on, or can I correct what has happened? And programmers have to learn to do that, or else they go into hiding their mistakes, which is the worst possible outcome. And uh, one of the great things about Agile for humans, if we want to go back to this topic directly, is that if everybody is working together and sees what everybody is doing, so you can't hide your mistakes, right? at least not from your team members. Now, now, if you get an agile team that's sick, it starts to try to hide its mistakes from people on the outside and, and look better than they are and so on. Uh, so that's something you have to watch out for. But Basically, if you really take an agile approach, you totally eliminate this personal hiding of, of mistakes. And uh, that's the, probably been the main source of mistakes in the, in the past. So that's number one thing going for agile. That's the beginning of the, of the insight I was hoping for. What I was hoping that I could maybe apply, if I'm really lucky, is so you had the insight of having 
striven for perfectionism in all contexts, I looked silly and I saw someone look silly and I realized I have this other rule that maybe overrides it sometimes. But I think many of us have some way of coping with perfectionism. I'm wondering, how were you able to put it to the point of having a book's worth of stuff to say about errors? I have another book on writing. Uh, people always ask me about how, how can you write so many books? Well, I'm always writing. I'm writing right now. It's, you say something that's interesting, uh, might be helpful to somebody, I make a note. And I have books and books full of notes, which I break down into what I call field stones. And my, my book is called uh, Weinberg on Writing the Fieldstone Method. And uh, you can read about that there. But basically, I put, I just keep gathering things. It's like if I'm building a stone wall, I just, every time I see a stone of any interest at all, I gather it. And uh, eventually, I look over them and I say, oh, look at this. I have hundreds of notes about errors, examples of errors that I've seen, examples of cost of errors, examples of people's reactions to errors. Uh, examples of how people have prevented errors or corrected them. And I and they kind of put them all together and I work on that for a while and form them into a book. And uh, this is the approach that I use in writing. I, uh, I wasn't even aware of that. Uh, that was my approach until James Bach asked me once, how, do, how do, could he write a book because he'd been unsuccessful? even though his father was a famous author. And it turned out he was trying to uh, basically imitate the way his father did it, which, you know, there's not one way to write a book. And uh, so he came to visit and we talked for a couple days about how I write books. And he said, you should write this down for other people, <laughs> which is, and of course I had all the material, which I'd been gathering for many years. So that's how it's done. That's how I got information on errors. I, I basically discover that I have a book. I have a book's worth of material, and it's my job then to shape it into a, a readable, usable format. Yeah, Jerry, I, I've read your, your Fieldstone book. It's actually what I consider a light bulb moment for me in my writing. So I've always been able to to capture ideas, like you said, but to really understand the fact that we have these small ideas, we, we're going to shape them, see where they fit, put them together. Really huge impact on my writing. So I now have post-its and notes and, and all these things that come together for different ideas. And so for the listeners out there, we'll put a, a link to Jerry's book in the show notes. But it is one of, the, one of the few books that has actually transformed my writing and actually gave me some guidance into actually how to organize my thoughts and, and some of the, the observations I had into something more meaningful. Well, there's a there's a lesson about this that I, that's really important for for agile teams doing software. Not that they should use that method to write software. That's that's not what I'm talking about. Maybe they will, but the, people tell me about the the writing book. They say, "Well, that's not the way I was taught to write in school." And, <laughs> and I said, "Well, uh, who taught you? You know?" And they said, "Well, you start with an outline, and then you fill in the out." And I said, well, and who taught you that? And I said, well, my teacher, Miss Smith, you know, and I said, well, how many books did she write? Oh, they go, oh. And then, <laughs> but the fact is that some people 
write books like Miss Smith said, start with an outline and fill it in and fill it in. Uh, that didn't work for me. Right? It didn't work for a lot of people. You know, it may have been a problem for a lot of, uh, it has been a problem for a lot of people. And it's the same in software. A lot of people have been told, <clears throat> this is the way you write software. In a, in a university, they have a professor who's never written any significant software. And they try to follow this. And for some of them, it, it, it works okay. And that's fine, right? That's fine. But the important thing is you have to discover your own process. And one of the things I love about Agile is that it's Agile. It is if you've got a team and somebody is trying to write software in somebody else's way, and somebody on the team will say, look, you're struggling with this. Why don't you try this way? Here's the way I do it. Here's the way I do it. And there's this flow of ideas and this acceptance that there's more than one way to do things. And the important thing for human beings to do is to find out a way that works for them. Um, the, the, uh, and that's acceptable to the people who are paying them to do this. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> it's again a disease that kills agile projects is when people start saying there's uh, one way you have to do it this way, especially managers who are who have never really written any programs themselves or it's been 20 years since they wrote a program. And uh, that just doesn't work. It, it, it just doesn't work generally. And so that's one of the strengths of Agile. I think people have to, and I've tried in my Agile Impressions book, and I keep adding to it. Uh, I've gotten the field sounds for that book by my consulting with teams, and I see what mistakes they make. You know, and they make mistakes like <clears throat> we just talked about, all right? They try to come up with the perfect way to do everything, uh, and they make uh, other mistakes like, I had a group that uh, said, we can't do stand-up meetings. I said, why not? He says, one of our guys is in a wheelchair. He can't stand. And I said, God, you know, you didn't get it, right? You just didn't get it. But there's a lot of things people don't get, although the, I think the Agile Manifesto and all the stuff that's been developed from that, has, it's quite clear to me, but I think a lot of people seem to want more, uh, you know, things like you have to stand and you have to, this probably you have to tell you what kind of shoes you should wear to stand in and so on and so forth. Uh, so that rigidity it kills agile teams. Right? And it is not a set of dance steps. It's not a set of dance steps. Right? Well, and perhaps the scariest part of it is that, you know, we ask people and teams to really examine what they're doing to to be critical of it and to change and so that change step sometimes requires an admittance of an error mm -hmm. or a mistake and i wonder if that's what makes you know agility or, or big a agile so difficult is that it's that first dose of humility that not everyone's uh, necessarily open to right and in fact there's not been enough written about um I think maybe maybe I, you guys may know some some good sources uh, about 
Well, there's so a lot of the stuff that's been written about Agile sort of implies that anybody can do it. And, and anybody can do it as well as anybody else. And that's simply not true. I mean, maybe it's true in the long run that if you really worked with people for years and years, you could eventually get them to have that humility, for example, which, as you say, is, is the big obstacle to begin with. Uh, but if people don't have that to begin with, you're going to have a hard time putting together a, a true Agile team. And uh, I've done in my consulting, I've done a lot of help the people in how to select your team to begin with and how to notice if you got you put somebody there who really is a long way from accepting the things they have to accept in order to work this way. People, uh, there was a, a blog recently about how to fire people from an Agile team. Well, it's... Uh, it's not difficult. I mean, if they're not able to do it, then, you know, uh, just like if they couldn't write code, you wouldn't ask them to write code. It's a skill. It, it requires training. It requires practice and certain attitudes like, you, you know, your humility that you mentioned. And uh, if, if it's taking too much trouble to do that, then you've got the wrong people on it. Uh, we put together teams, uh, what I recommend people put together their Agile teams by what I call incremental consensus. You start with one person who you feel has the, the personal qualities. Uh, stop emphasizing, what I read about is people emphasizing, you gotta have the most skilled coder and you can put all the best coders together and then you have an Agile team. Now, you find someone who's got these personal qualities, they know how to communicate, <clears throat> they're willing to communicate, they're willing to admit their mistakes and learn, and you start with that person and you say, okay, now, among all the people we have available to us, who would you like most to team up with? To do a good job, you understand the Agile principles, and they choose. Uh, of course, it's one person, so it's a consensus. And the person has to want to be on it, right? Now you have two people. Now you say to them, okay, now come to an agreement on who else you'd like to have. If you started with the right person, the process goes on and they put together a team that really does well. It may take them a while to learn, uh, they, but they can learn the skills uh, the technical skills more easily than they can learn the personal skills, the uh, people skills, as we call them. Um, and if that's another one of the mistakes, you see, that I see that kills Agile teams, is that some boss decides they need a coding expert or, or a network expert, and so we pick the person who we think codes the best. Uh, and they make that mistake in two ways, right? One is they, they may actually pick the person who codes the best, but they don't know how to work with the other people. The other mistake they make, since they've been working non-agile, right? They've never really looked at what the person does and they don't know who codes the best. How would they know, right? I, I remember once at Microsoft, uh, they told me this guy, a certain guy, was the best programmer they had. And I said, how come? 
Well, number one, he doesn't wear shoes. And number two, he has seven PCs in his office running at the same time. Well, if you choose your people that way, <laughs> uh, what, what kind of result do you think you're going to get? There were some good examples in errors also of uh, misjudging someone's best programmer based on, I think you said, uh, the, the criterion was how many questions do they ask? And you were pleased by that, except that you found out that it was inverse to the way that you would have been pleased by that. The programmer that asked the most questions was assumed to be the least capable. I often ask people this question. It's an interesting thing you could try. It's people who are not necessarily in the business at all and say, who is the world's greatest programmer? as if there is such a thing. Uh, and they all say Bill Gates. Why? Oh, because he made billions of dollars. Well, that's about as worthless as the other criteria. First of all, he didn't write most of the programs that he sold. And, uh, but I don't know. Maybe he uh, would be a good Agile team member. I don't know. An interesting part about Agile Impressions. In fact, I've been reading throughout the, the book here, and it, I like the, the historical aspect that you bring because many of us uh, don't realize or appreciate that many of the Agile practices were born of early NASA and early IBM practice. And, and it gave me a, a thought that I wanted to run by, Jerry, but, and see if this is where we're going. Because a question I get a lot, and I think a question that Amitai and many consultants get is yes, this Agile stuff is all well and good, but what's the next thing? And it's a hard question to ask, but I think your book may have helped me, Jerry, and I'm wondering what you think about this thought, is that Agile is just another step towards congruence between the way we deliver software and the way humans act, work, think, or more, it's really the congruence between software development and humanity. A, a truly human system. Well, I think that's exactly it. There's, but it's not just one thing, as humans are not just one thing. So there's a lot of aspects of, of humanity that, that we need to incorporate. And number one is the learning. That is, these practices have been around, isolated, since the beginning. Some people have been doing good software, really good software, for my whole lifetime, right? Some people have made mistakes and recognized that they were mistakes and corrected them. So we have to keep doing that, which is a human thing. That's the way human beings have progressed. But we also have to counter certain human tendencies. Uh, the, you know, I, I, my wife's an anthropologist uh, by profession, or her first profession. And uh, I used to go to the anthropology meetings with her. And I heard a, a wonderful paper once uh, by a woman who had studied the evolution of language, which is always a big question. Uh, and learning to use language is like learning to program. I mean, it's, uh, it's the same kind of thing. There, and she was talking about written language. And the fact was that she could show archaeologically that people had been using written language for about 5,000 years before they realized that they were using written language, and which is a very human kind of thing. That is, we do things for a long time, often slavishly repeating them, but we don't get this awareness of what we're doing. The, uh, the example that she found was that people in trade, they would send things from one 
area to another uh, over long distances in camel caravans and so on. So they would put stuff, they would seal stuff in jars. They would put little clay, sort of clay marbles with inscriptions on them that said what was in the jar or what was in the, like there were a hundred sheep, they had a jar with a hundred little sheep symbols in it. They were doing this for thousands of years until they realized that if, if, if they had these symbols, they didn't have to make little things out of them. They could just scratch them into a, a, a tablet or something and use it. Well, the same way in programming, that people have done things and so what we need to continue to do is to actually look at what we're doing, not theorizing about what we're doing. I was criticized. Well, I think it was a criticism. Well, I took it as a compliment. We teach, uh, uh, what's, I guess, a world-famous leadership course, which used to be called the Technical Leadership Workshop. And now it's called Problem Solving Leadership Workshop. We want to take the emphasis off the technical parts and consider everything, all the human things that we do and so on, what do we need to lead ourselves to, as you say, to the next generation, the next step. And some years ago, uh, somebody who I don't know uh, wrote a review for computing reviews about leadership courses for technical people. And sort of after reviewing lots of courses that were around, she said, oh, and, oh yes, and by the way, Jerry Weinberg has a course called the Technical Leadership Workshop, I think we still call that. But all they do is make people aware of stuff they weren't aware of before. Well, I thought that was the greatest possible compliment you could make, because that's what we need to do for the next step, is to become aware of the various things we're not doing that we're unaware we're doing. Because we have lots of smart people in the business. If they're not aware of what they're doing, they can't do the next step. They're not aware they made a mistake. They're not aware they're covering it up. Uh, they're, they're not aware they're trying to be perfect and defend themselves. When it comes to that awareness, I, I, I know you don't. I don't want you to give away the punchline of your course. I've, I've, we have many friends of the podcast who have been to it, and they all. They're, they encourage uh, me and others to get there, and, and I, I hope someday we do. But as far as awareness, you know, what are the things that the listeners can do to, to start looking around, to start seeing things from a different angle and, and to become more aware of what they're doing and, and to be able to uh, self-diagnose and, and find constructive uh, new steps to take? Okay. Number one, of course, the easiest would be to get on an Agile team because your teammates will make you aware of what you are doing, right? Now, a team, if it's can get to where the team gets into some kind of group fantasy about what they're doing, and you have to watch out for that, right? But, uh, but if you can't get in an agile team, for whatever reason, uh, your boss won't allow it, or you work in a small organization and not enough people, get yourself a buddy, uh, and maybe several buddies, maybe different buddies for different purposes, and someone uh, make an agreement with them Maybe you need to write it out that uh, here's what I'd like you to watch me, watch me for. And if you tell me I'm doing something stupid, I won't hit you. I, I, I won't fight you. I will, uh, I will listen and try to uh, take it in and use what, what's there. And if you make suggestions, 
I won't take them as uh, blaming me for something, but just and maybe I'll do them, maybe I won't, but I'll consider it. And uh, for me, of course, the best buddy that I ever got is my wife, Danny, who, uh, aside from you know being an anthropologist, and, and now she's the world-famous dog trainer, uh, you, one of the things you learn to do is to watch. And people don't know when they're trying to train a dog is they have some idea of what to do, and they don't watch the dog. They don't notice the responding. That's why I wanted to see Amitai's face while he's operating here, because I can see now he's smiling. So I, I made a point. He got something. Now, now he's mocking me with his fingers. It, you know, and I can interpret that, and I can see, am I getting across? Am I being misunderstood? And so on. But as a, both as an anthropologist and as a dog trainer, she's just an incredible observer, a wife, a husband, a friend, whatever, somebody who you trust and make an explicit agreement to observe each other. And it has to be both ways. See, that's one of the, again, one of the things about Agile, the, the whole principle about self-management of a team. You don't need a boss telling you what you're doing wrong all the time. Right? That's, that's a very crude way to learn. You may, what you generally learn in those situations is how to avoid being seen by the boss, which is exactly the opposite of what you want, right? So you have to set up an environment where it's okay for somebody to see you and to comment on. It doesn't have to be in public, right? It doesn't have to be embarrassing or anything else. And uh, that's the first step, okay? Uh, which fortunately is, comes naturally to Agile teams. I, th I think um, it, a second thing, well, it's, again, it's part of the Agile approach, um, is as far as being aware of what you're doing technically, uh, you want to be sure to participate in technical reviews. It is reviewing other people's work having your work reviewed in, in an environment, and I've written about this, and you can read all about that. And then it's part of the Agile uh, manifesto too. All work has to be reviewed. Nobody's good enough to just write stuff down and then it's okay. So uh, people, again, I wrote, uh, somebody reviewed that my book on reviews, and they said, uh, it quoted me, it said, I didn't understand reviews because I said the, the main benefit of reviews is the learning that takes place, not that you fix software errors and things. And that's good, that's fine, but if you have a system in your life of reviewing people's work and having your work reviewed, and it's set up regularly to do this, then again, you'll be, get that awareness and, and you'll get better, right? You, you can't really help yourself from getting better. I think I, I think he said in the errors book, I had a client once, uh, we were talking uh, and I'm helping them set up different things and I said, do you do technical reviews? He said, oh yeah, we do them. I said, well, when do you do them? He said, oh, we almost always do them. Well, see this again, this is learning to observe. What was the key word there? Almost. And, and so you pursue it with them. And uh, you know, if you're a consultant, you do this with your clients. You have to work out a relationship where I could ask him, I said, what do you mean by almost? 
He says, well, uh, he says, once in a while we can't review something. I said, why not? He says, well, we're, we're behind schedule. We don't have time to do that. And I said, now, okay, so let's think it through. See, this is where what a buddy does, right? So let's think it through. Why is it behind schedule? Why is the piece of software behind schedule? And he says, well, I don't know. They're just working too slow or I'm not pushing them hard enough. Typical manager answers. Right? They're not motivated. I said, let's go check, right? That's another thing you learn to do is to check out ideas on the ground. What are people actually doing as opposed to what you imagine they're doing? And we talked to some of the teams that had projects that were slow. And the reason was always the same thing. They were fixing mistakes. That's why any project gets behind, is to fixing mistakes. Might have been mistakes in, in gathering the requirements, or communicating with your customer, might have been coding errors, whatever. It might have been physical mistakes. You know. So I said, okay, now we know that. Now let's translate what you said into more explicit English. We review everything unless it's got a lot of errors, and then we don't review it. Because they throw it out or because they yeah, let it go without reviewing it? Schedule. So, yeah, so we, can't pot, we can't afford to review it. So, so, I, so I recommend that I said, okay, here's your new process. Is stop reviewing all the things that you currently review and only review the things you currently don't review and you will improve your, your error removal enormously. Of course, that was silly. I mean, there's no reason to stop doing what you're doing. But he got the point. Because if you review stuff, the organization gets better faster. That's why Agile teams get better faster. That's why you have to have a little patience with an Agile team and why they don't have to be perfect when they start. Because uh, they, if they really do what it says, they'll get better very quickly. You know, when you said uh, almost always at the beginning of this anecdote, it put me in mind of the, the, the anecdote that leads to the law of twins. Where, uh, do, you, do you want to tell that one real quick? Yeah, the law of twins came to me. It's, it's, a, it's a multiple joke because there is a famous genetic law called Weinberg's law of twins. Not for me, but for a different Weinberg, a famous geneticist. Right? <laughs> uh, so um, I uh, saw this happen on the bus in New York when I got on the bus and there in front of me was a woman with six kids, six little kids. And uh, the bus driver, uh, she asked him how much was the fare, and he looked at her and said, how old are the kids? And she was holding two, and she says, these two are one year old, and these two are two years old, and these two are four years old. He just looked astonished, and he said, gee, lady, do you always have twins? And she says, no, most of the time we don't have any. <laughs> That's what I thought of when you yeah. said almost always. I thought it was going to go like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, most of the time we review the code, but uh, and maybe that's good enough, but if it isn't good enough, you have to do something about it. The, um, I also told, you see, again, it's typical of the kind of errors that you make. Learning not to make assumptions is a big, a big part of learning to get better in our business learning to notice when you make assumptions. And um, I had uh, a student, a woman student in the class, and we had been talking about something, and she said something about her sister 
And I said, oh, is she your older sister or younger? He says, well, we're actually the same age. We were born on actually the same age. He said, we were born and we were born on the same day. And uh, I said, oh, you're twins. She says, no, no, we're not. And I said, oh, well, one of you adopted? I went through all these ideas about what it might be. And she said, no, and she was smiling. She was really pulling my chain. And she says, finally, she says, uh, we're triplets. Well, and I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. You know, wow, that, that's really ridiculous. You know, that's so unlikely. I went home, and when I got home, I kissed my wife, and then I went to the front porch where my dog, one of our dogs, had just had a litter of seven puppies all born on the same day. So right there on my own front porch, I had, you know, and I was not aware. So back to that awareness thing. I mean, we, uh, we do that constantly, you know. And uh, I have a thing which you may have heard about. It's a song uh, which we call the Programmer's National Anthem. Do you know the Programmer's National Anthem? I do not. I don't either. Okay, I'm going to sing it for you. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I have sung that anthem before. You already knew that anthem, right? You probably sing it yourself many times. That, that's the sound you make when you become aware of some assumption you've been making, some mistake that you've made, right? You, that you thought was right and was not right. And learning to laugh about it I get one of the ways I do that is I get my, my clients in their teams to sing that song and to become aware that they're singing it. And they laugh and then they sing it together and they have a good time. So humor is a big part of this. Uh, if I find someone who has no sense of humor, and there are such people, right, uh, they don't go on any team that I would choose. My intuition about that, not I'm probably not going to steal your thunder because there's more to it than my simple intuition about that, is that it's something about the associative thinking that works for humor and works for testing. Mm-hmm. I look yeah. forward to reading. Yeah, I mean, what is what what is a joke? What make what makes a punchline of a joke is something that you didn't expect, right? They say it's unexpected truth is the uh, funniest punchline, right? Right. And, and then you, uh, well, what is software testing? Is you're looking for things exactly like that. Somebody thought was one way and it's actually a different way. And you're surprised and nobody noticed that before. So anyway, we're going to work on that with a few uh, very experienced testers and see what comes out. I wonder if the testers will get, I bet they get as much delight out of finding a bug as, as we do about hearing a punchline. Uh, you can, but of course I have to teach them not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> right? Not where anyone can hear them anyway. Yeah, because, because the big problem that you have in testing is the, exactly what we're talking about, that you feed back to somebody that you made a mistake and uh, they start thinking you're... Well, that, that you're being superior to them or trying to be superior. I mean, most of us went to schools where that was the teacher's job was to point out our mistakes. They think that's the way you would teach. And the, um, you know, and criticizing our mistakes and maybe punishing us for our mistakes. So, and of course, you don't correct the teacher who makes mistakes. 
So it's a one-way thing. It's a power relationship. And we spent years learning that kind of stuff. And uh, it has to be unlearned if you're going to be successful in, in building software. Uh, you know, you have to learn to take that as a friendly, the friendliest thing that you can do for somebody. Uh, people write me and they'll find an error in one of my books and they'll write me and they're often extremely apologetic. You know, oh, we, you know, oh, you know, no, oh, we love the book, but we're just to tell you you have a comma missing here. So, uh, you don't have to apologize to me for that. It's the most wonderful gift somebody can give an author. Uh, what it made me think of when you said about uh, people uh, expecting that being corrected is something that an authority figure does, and therefore if somebody does that, then they're behaving like an authority figure. Uh, when I enter a team as a coach or a consultant, I find, uh, first of all, 90% of what I do, if anything helps them, is my behavior, just modeling the behavior that I hope that they will have. And 90% of what I think helps about that is one of the first things I do, and I come back to it frequently, and it's not any kind of a strategy, it's just me genuinely doing it, is I demonstrate how safe it is to be wrong. Mm -hmm. I come in and I make the dumbest mistake, I pick the dumbest idea, I champion what clearly can't be the right answer, uh, and just show by my actions and by my reactions to how those are handled, I'm fine, so, so can you. And I feel like that's m one of the more effective things that I do just because I am that way. Yeah, well, if you're not that way, though, you, it, people see when you're just pretending. Uh, I noticed uh, a little boy in, one of the, in uh, your picture <laughs> on the back. And uh, one of the ways to learn about this is to have kids. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, I have this picture, of, which I've seen a few times, of a parent lecturing his child about not smoking. I have one of my sons died of lung cancer because I never found a way to get him to stop smoking. Uh, his mother smoked. And I get a picture of her when I see he was a kid, a teenager, telling him that he shouldn't be smoking while she was smoking. I get that from individuals. I also get that I will, I'll be consulting with a software company that makes software tools. And I've had this happen dozens of times over the years. And I'll say, well, show me how you use the tools that you make. And so oh, well, we don't use them. We're different. Well, Jerry, we have occupied your time for coming up on an hour now. And I wanted to make sure that... Uh, we stayed respectful of our time box. And so at this point of the podcast, and, and by the way, I've enjoyed this immensely. I hope we could talk you into doing this again, but this has been a, a wonderful conversation. At this point of the, the podcast, we'd like to allow our guests to promote anything they have coming up, uh, provide any book promotions or anything else that you would like to get in front of our listeners. Two things I would like to promote. One is my books. I'll say more about that. Go to my Lean Pub site. But we'll get a we'll get a link in the show notes so that people can just click right through, Jerry. Okay. Uh, the second thing that I would uh, say, and there's only two, I think, is come to my uh, problem-solving leadership workshop. But that's not good enough because it's also a problem. When we announce one of those, we don't announce them way in advance. Uh, the problem with the, with the problem-solving leadership is that we announce the next one 
and it fills up within two or three days. If you do want to come, and that's, of course, your choice, or you want to tell somebody, they suggest they come, tell them to watch for the, get on our mailing list, and then move quickly when you find out about it. I wish um, we could uh, handle this for everybody that wants to go, but uh, it's just physically impossible. It's a, it's a taxing experience for all of us. We only offer it a few times, and it fills up quickly. Uh, we had to change the time of day we were announcing it because we were shutting out people from Europe because they didn't get it until the next morning. So now we announce so that they get a first chance, and half our people come from outside the United States. Uh, anyway, so those are the two things. But consider it. We'd love to have you or your friends. And it's... If you have, we're getting almost all the people we get now are from agile teams or people trying to create agile teams. Uh, we don't use the word agile in the title because it applies to lots of things. Um, and I think the best uh, feedback I get is when somebody tells me, well, this is great, this is wonderful, but the best thing is it has improved my relationship with my teenage son or daughter and that makes me really happy anyway those are the two things i'd like you to amatide what do you have going on that you'd like to plug well uh seeing as my reputation is not so firmly established yet as jerry's i have a couple more than two things to plug uh one is that for the first time in my life i have backed into writing a book with what seems related to the fieldstone method so i will be checking out that book my book is called agile in three minutes the book and it's at leanpub.com slash Agile in Three Minutes. There are two Agile in Three Minutes episodes that I think are germane to today's discussion. One is episode five, Wrong, which is my tiny contribution to the study of human error and its, its correct use. And uh, episode 26, Surprise, which uh -huh. is a little bit about uh, error and, and humor and uh, delight while we're at it. And then uh, a couple pieces of reading material. One is, uh, we talked about perfectionism and recovering from that. I have a couple blog posts on schmanz.com. One called TDD Saved My Brain and <laughs> one called Life Hacks for the Test Infected. And these are both about things that have helped me uh, in my battle against perfectionism ruling my life. And finally, one more post on schmanz.com, which is from June, shortly after I participated in problem-solving leadership. And uh, it may help folks who are considering whether to sign up for the mailing list uh, decide whether this is the kind of thing they'd want to participate in. So that's at schmanz.com as well, and we'll put those links in the show notes. Yep, and for me this week, I, I just have uh, one plug and one ask. And so what I'm going to plug is Jerry's Fieldstone book. So if you look at the bookshelf behind me, guys, you can see the top shelf is mostly Jerry's books. Uh, actually, Jerry, you fill up most of that top shelf. Uh, the Fieldstone book, like I said, had a huge impact. And in fact, you gave me a Fieldstone tonight. So I've been struggling... Uh, there's an idea that Agile is better, faster, and cheaper. And I've rejected this idea. I've, I've struggled with the premise. But you gave me an idea to where I actually can argue that Agile is better, faster, and cheaper. And so there will be a blog post out shortly where this uh, idea has finally been connected. And it's uh, thanks to Mr. Weinberg here. So that is my plug, that there will be a blog post on this uh, topic that's been eating my brain that I think Jerry has finally helped uh, nudge loose. I'm so glad I could ask, bring you two together. Yes, I, I I got so much value out of this note, and uh, I hope this uh, this post 
uh, comes out how I think it will. God, you but you make it sound like a horror movie. I'm the brain no. eater. <laughs> I'm eating your brain. <laughs> uh, you know what? The, there are some ideas that just bore their way in, and uh, until you work them out, at least for me, uh, they just occupy space. And uh, you helped nudge, nudge this one loose, and so you freed up a little bit of RAM for me, Jerry. But uh, the ask is that uh, 2016 has started off very strong for the podcast. We've been blessed with great guests like like Jerry and, and many others that uh, our listeners have enjoyed. The downloads are at, at an all-time high. And uh, first, I want to share an appreciation. Just thank you very much for being here. We love having you, know, you the listener, uh, let us, you know, feed into your brain and, and think about the things we're saying and, and provide the feedback. It's this wonderful feedback loop of, of just great ideas exchanging. I'd like to ask that you guys help us grow the podcast by sharing this with your friends, uh, enhancing and growing the conversation. Like us on, on iTunes. Uh, please leave comments on the blog post. You know, Amitai and I, we love getting the comments back and thinking about, you know, all the great things that uh, you guys think of and, and those ideas just grow and grow. So those are the two things that, uh, for me tonight, and again, Jerry, we just want to thank you for joining us. This has been a real uh, pleasure uh, to have you with us. And so, again, just can't thank you enough for, for doing the show tonight. Well, thank you. It's been at least as much fun for me as it is for you. That's, that's the criterion I use in my <laughs> workshops and in writing my books. If I don't enjoy it, then I'm not doing a good job, and that tells me I have to do something different. I think that would be a good measure for any Agile team. If you're not enjoying your work, then the team isn't working right. And uh, maybe that's a good place to close, but I really enjoyed this, both of you guys, not just because you're Bears fans. (laughs) Uh, Now everyone knows. Great. Thank you very much, guys. (laughs) Great to talk to you again, Jerry. Thanks for listening to Agile for Humans. Let's keep the conversation going. Drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening, and scrum on!